Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, if you'll take your Bibles, remain standing and take your Bibles and turn once again to James chapter 1 as we continue our study through the book of James. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, our ushers would be more than glad to bring you one so that you can follow along. Just raise your hand and and they'd be glad to uh, bring you a Bible. So James chapter 1, this morning our text is verses 9 through 12. If you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. As we come to our text this morning, it's important that we remember that James is writing to Jewish believers who had fled to Judea and Samaria and to Jewish communities around the Mediterranean as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. I mean, they were, they were refugees trying to escape the persecution that had broke out against the church. And having left the security of home, these Jewish believers were not taken in by their Jewish countrymen because they were Christians. Instead, they were rejected, persecuted, denied work, refused help, left in the dire straits of poverty. Consequently, they were also exploited by the Gentiles, and they were homeless and disenfranchised. They were robbed of what possessions they had, hauled into court. I mean, they had less standing than slaves. I mean, these believers were experiencing severe trials and suffering. And when word of this got back to James, who, who loved them, he wanted to help them, he wanted, to be able to, he wanted them to be able to live out their faith in the crucible of life and, and all their trials, he wanted to equip them to do this. And so he began the letter by addressing the issue of the Christian and trials. In verses 2 to 4, he dealt with the believer's proper response to trials. James said believers should respond with an attitude of joy when faced with various trials because trials have a great spiritual value. And they're valuable for what God accomplishes in our lives through them. 
Trials are a means of testing through which God works to purify, strengthen, and perfect our faith. They produce steadfastness or perseverance, which produces spiritual maturity, which is demonstrated by a likeness to Christ in every part of our character. But James knew the nature of trials, and he knew that that having an attitude of joy in the midst of trials and, and not rebelling against the experience is much easier to say than it is to actually do. And so if we have any hope of having an attitude of joy and and persevering under trials, it requires divine wisdom. We need God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly, and that's what James addressed in verses 5 through 8. And by wisdom, James means the God-given ability to see our circumstances from his perspective, to stand firm, trusting in the Lord, and the practical insight to take appropriate actions, to respond properly and and live obediently in the midst of our trials for our growth and maturity and for God's glory. And James tells us that when we're in a trial, if we lack wisdom, which we all do, the way we receive wisdom is to ask God, who is the God who continuously gives and the God who's really waiting for us to ask. But James said that we're to Ask God in faith, believing, not being double-minded and and wavering, but to ask, believing, and the Lord who gives generously to all without reproach will give it. So James says what what the Christian needs in, in order to rejoice in trials is wisdom. And now in verses 9 to 12, he gives an illustration of this in practice, when he talks about poverty and riches, which are commonly experienced trials. Both the poor and the rich are undergoing a test. You know, how will they handle their lack of things? Or how will they handle possessing an abundance of things? Both poverty and riches involve a test in which believers need God's wisdom to see their trial from His eternal perspective, to stand firm, and the practical insight to respond appropriately. Now as we begin, let me just tell you that commentators disagree as to whether the rich man addressed is a believer or an unbeliever. The majority of the commentators I read said that they believe it is a believer. But you can study that yourself and come to your own conclusion. But but I believe both men described in these verses are believers. Let me just give you a couple of reasons. And and there's a number, but let me just give you a couple. Number one, James is still addressing uh, those who are members of the 12 tribes whom he calls my brothers in verse 2. In other words, they're Christian brothers and sisters, fellow members in God's family. Secondly, he uses the term brother again in verse 9. And as one commentator said, brother governs the meaning of poor and rich in verses 9 and 10 due to its position in the Greek text. And then just one more. The words translated pass away and fade away used of the rich man in verses 10 and 11 never refer to the final judgment of unbelievers anywhere else in the New Testament or elsewhere in the New Testament. So I believe that James is addressing both poor and rich Christians. The poor man is a believer, 
and the rich man is a believer. So James is not speaking to the poor or rich in general, rather to those who were in Christ and part of the church. And though the churches James is writing to consisted uh, mainly of poor people, we know from the rest of the letter that there were some who were fairly well off and that they were able to travel on business and, and brag about their hopes to make money. So James begins in verse 9 with the low brother, meaning the poor brother. For the poor believer, poverty is a test. And then in verses 10 and 11, he turns to the rich man. And for the rich man, prosperity is a test. And finally, in verse 12, James speaks of the blessing for those who remain steadfast under trial. So let's look now at verse 9 as James addresses the lowly brother. Notice he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So brother describes a person, a man or a woman who belongs to the family of God through faith in Christ. And James describes this person as the, the lowly brother. Literally, the brother, the lowly one. And the word translated here as lowly means humble, low or inferior in station or quality. And it ordinarily focuses not on economic poverty, but on lowliness, either humble status in society or humble attitude. However, it can refer to the economically poor, since they are almost always low in status in society. And since here James contrasts the lowly man with the rich man, it is clear that he is not speaking of those of humble attitude, but rather those of humble position. That's why the New American Standard translates it, the brother of humble circumstances. It's referring to physical poverty. So this man is poor in terms of wealth, and his financial circumstances has relegated him to a lowly social position. So James is speaking of a believer who is very low down on the socioeconomic scale, one who is poor. Probably penniless and powerless. In God's eyes, these believers were not simply poor, but rather poor for Christ. In other words, their circumstances were directly related to the fact that they were Christians. They were suffering for their faith socially and, and economically. Many of them had lost everything for the sake of the Messiah and, and were uncertain whether, where, where their next meal was going to come from. They were outcasts living in abject poverty. We also know that there was a famine that struck about this time and this would have made their suffering even more severe. And there were many poor people in the early church, just as there are many brothers and sisters in our day suffering with poverty and rejection. And these believers who are uh, in humble circumstances, I mean, they're, they're poor people, they're, they're godly, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they've obeyed God, but they're poor. And some have mistakenly equated poverty with true spirituality and divine favor. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. There is nothing spiritual about being poor, just as there is nothing spiritual about being rich. Poverty is a trial. 
A poor man has to scratch out a living. He's often deprived of the necessities of life. He, he gets no respect from the world. He's looked down upon. All of those are, are great trials, and all of that can lead to bitterness. I mean, poverty can make a Christian discontented, complaining, and self-pitying, fearful, anxious, envious, and self-righteous. It can tempt him to covet another man's position or possessions and, and to steal. I mean, it can destroy a poor Christian. It is not easy for Christians in humble circumstances because they are economically low. They're, they're low in the eyes of the world and no doubt in most instances low in their own eyes. And perhaps these brothers and sisters were struggling with doubt or, or wondering if the Lord might have abandoned them. And James knew well how oppressive and disheartening such circumstances could be. And so he uses the tender term brothers to remind them that they were indeed brothers in Christ, fellow members of God's family, joint heirs with Christ. He, he wanted them to know that poverty could never separate them from Christ or alter their spiritual position. And he reminded them that though they had few of the world's goods, they had access to something greater that would help them through all the situations of life. Wisdom from God. They need only ask in faith and the Lord would give them wisdom to help, help them see from his perspective. Stand firm. Respond properly. And these believers were insignificant in the world's eyes, lowly, poor, powerless, lacking in material possessions. And James did not want the terrible circumstances they were in to make them think that God had abandoned them or to think, that, uh, think of themselves as second-rate or inferior Christians. And so what does he instruct them to do? Well, contrary to the health and wealth heresy, James does not say that the poor brother is to claim his fortune or, his, or a home or a Mercedes by faith. I mean, the name it and claim it or, or health and wealth heresy is an absolute perversion of the Word of God that uses false promises to appeal to the greed of its victims. He also doesn't tell them to, you know, just buck up, go out and get a job, work hard, and, and get themselves out of the poorhouse. Though working diligently to provide for your family is good biblical advice, and the Bible says if you don't work to provide for your family, you're, you're worse than an unbeliever. But no doubt some of these believers were unable to get work simply because they were Christians. So what does James instruct them to do? Well, he encouraged them to take pride in their high position. And what was their high position? Well, the word brother gives us a clue. No matter how low they were in terms of the world's goods, they were exceedingly rich in spiritual terms. I mean, they had nothing, but yet they possessed everything. Because they had been delivered from the power and penalty of sin by the saving work of Jesus Christ and had been made part of the family of God. And their poverty could never nullify that. 
James puts it this way. Look back at the verse. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the Greek word translated here as boast is often translated rejoice or glory. The NIV translates it take pride in. Certainly there's a wrong kind of boasting and an arrogant boasting. But in this context, James is speaking of a legitimate form of boasting, which in its good sense speaks of rejoicing. So this is a a joyful boasting, a joyful uh, rejoicing, if you will. James is encouraging the lowly brother to boast in the best sense of the term. He wants him to boast or rejoice or glory in what? His exaltation. And the word exaltation literally means height. And it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the height of heaven. In other words, the the heavenly realm to which Christ ascended and from which the Holy Spirit descends. James says, let the lowly brother boast, let him rejoice in the height he has reached. Now, in purely material terms, this makes no sense at all. In fact, it's absolutely absurd. But James is not speaking in material terms. He's speaking about a brother, someone who has become a Christian, and what he is saying is that having become a Christian, he should never look at his poverty in the same light again. I mean, his material position, his poverty may not change. He, he might remain in poverty. But in spiritual terms, his salvation has raised him to a high, exalted position as a child of God. And he should boast, he should greatly rejoice in this and in the countless blessings that position brings. doesn't boast in his own status. doesn't boast in his own ability or accomplishments, but rather in God and in what God has done for him. In saving him, God has elevated him from his lowly state, seating him, the Bible says, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Paul said in Romans 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then later in the same chapter, Paul said, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mean, James' point is that believers must look beyond the world's evaluation to understand who they are and and look to God's view of them. They have an exalted position as part of God's family. They're children of God. And as Paul said in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and and fellow heirs with Christ. How's that for high and exalted? 
James will say later in chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Speaking of spiritual richness. I mean, think of all that we have in Christ. Think of all of the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. I mean, we've been chosen by God to be rich in faith. We've been redeemed and forgiven according to the riches of God's grace, possessing the unfathomable riches of Christ. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. We, we are partakers of the divine nature. We have access to God's holy presence. I mean, Paul said in Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then, of course, Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have access to God's holy presence to the very throne of God himself. I mean, we're looking forward to future exaltation with Christ because you see, your best life is not now. Your best life is later. I mean, we are heirs with a future divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure. Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We're going to see Christ, and we're going to be like Him. John said in 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We're going to possess a glorified body. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so as Paul said in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this high position is a present reality for all believers. This is not future. This is a present reality. And it was a present reality for the poor believers James was writing to. I mean, it was their rich heritage as children of God who lived in anticipation of participating in Christ's eternal kingdom. I mean, yes, they were, certainly they were facing severe trials and persecution. But James wanted them to know that they could take pride, joyously boasting in the high position that they had been given as God's very own children. You see, however poor a Christian may be financially or materially, he can rejoice in the fact 
that God has raised him to a high and exalted position in Christ Jesus. I mean, whatever our social or economic situation, James instructs us to look beyond it to our spiritual riches and eternal advantages because what we have in Jesus Christ far outweighs anything and everything in this life. We have a great hope which will make our present sufferings here seem light and momentary. And so James instructs the lowly brother to look beyond his earthly circumstances, his, his trials, and, and to boast in his high position. And this he could do if he asked for wisdom from God in faith, believing, not being double-minded and wavering, and the Lord who gives generously to all without reproach would give it. You know, we need to hear this as much as James' original readers. And while it may not be so much the case in the West, it is certainly true that, that many Christians in other places of the world today are actually suffering uh, from poverty because of persecution. But today here, I mean, many Christians are being made to feel low and inferior because of their faith. I mean, today we're frequently told that we're guilty of hate crimes if we uh, hold to the teachings of the Word of God. I mean, for example, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ alone is the way to heaven. There aren't many roads it is through Jesus Christ alone. The Bible also teaches that homosexuality is a sin. It is wrong. The Bible also teaches that, that hell is real. And all of those apart from Christ are on their way to an eternal hell. But as we share this with others, we are often accused of being intolerant bigots. And many Christians find themselves constantly beaten down at work or in school or, or perhaps even among friends and family. But listen, no matter how detested we are in this world, no matter how low and despicable we appear to be, we actually enjoy the highest of all privileges because we belong to the family of God. Sinclair Ferguson said, It is the greatest privilege in the world to believe in Christ and to belong to his people. And it truly is. And I think that many in the West, many in this country, have lost sight of that fact. And so we need to pay attention to James' instruction to focus on and to boast in and to rejoice in, in our high, exalted position in Christ Jesus. And now in verses 10 to 11, James turns to the rich believer. For the rich man, prosperity is a test. James now presents the other side of the principle, just as a materially, materially poor believer should boast in his spiritual riches, the materially rich should boast in his humiliation. Look at verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Here is a man in exactly the opposite circumstances of the lowly brother. This brother is rich. 
Now, there were far fewer rich people than poor in the early church, but, but there were some. And they needed instruction about their position. And of course, most of us this morning think that this applies to men like Donald Trump, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett. You know, those type of men. But by the world's standards, every one of us this morning would qualify as rich. Many of us own our own homes. If not, we at least have a rented home or apartment with electricity, indoor plumbing, heating and and cooling, cupboards and freezers filled with food. We have TVs, computers, smartphones, and other electronics and gadgets to make life more comfortable. Most families own more than one car. Our closets are bulging with so many clothes that it takes a while to decide what it is we're going to wear each day. But that's not true for the majority of the world's population. Much of the rest of the world lives in crowded huts and shacks with no indoor plumbing or electricity and no clothes except those on their backs, and they would give almost anything to have what we have. These verses do apply to us. I mean, most Christians recognize poverty as a trial for obvious reasons. But James reminds us that riches are also a trial. In fact, they are a very dangerous trial at that. The wealth that Abraham acquired in Egypt from Pharaoh later became the source of a family feud. Moses warned that wealth would bring the temptation to forget God. And the Bible spells out the dangers of prosperity again and again. It speaks of the deceitfulness of wealth. And Jesus warned his disciples that life does not consist in the abundance of things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that material concerns can easily crowd out spiritual matters. And a number of our Lord's parables involve the dangers of wealth. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There Jesus taught that it is impossible for a man or woman who trusts in riches to get into heaven. As one man said, one commentator said, riches steal the unregenerate against the primary requirement for entering the kingdom of God, helpless dependence. It is difficult for the rich to present themselves as naked, humble beggars before God. Our rich rich culture is, therefore, disadvantaged and underprivileged. But what about the small minority of rich Christians in James' day? Or what about rich Christians today? Does wealth present a problem? Of course it does. Of course it did, just as it does for rich Christians today. One man said, there are few tests of faith quite as rigorous. Pride, envy, self-sufficiency, worry, sensual indulgence, theft, violence, oppression, and much more all trace back to money or the desire for it. One man said, the Bible is clear that the problems of prosperity are as keen as those of poverty. 
Indeed, they constitute, if anything, a more insidious threat to a committed life with God. And that is exactly right. And this is precisely the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he said, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 in verses 1 to 9 in that passage there that in the last days, among other things, there would be those in the church who who would be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, prosperity is a very real trial, folks. In fact, Spurgeon said there is no trial like prosperity. And a comparison of Christianity in the the prosperous countries with Christianity in countries where Christians are not prosperous bears that truth out. Prosperity can affect a believer's perspective on life. Certainly their perspective on money. Because rather than giving their prosperity as the Scriptures exhort to meet the needs of the church and others, to be ready to quickly respond to the human need around us and and to delight to use our excess to that purpose, prosperity often leads believers to forget about God and to begin to think that their money is all their own and that they deserve it which leads to greed, to hoarding, to selfishness, a constantly increasing standard of living, more things, more toys, always indulging and gratifying themselves, always seeking more pleasure, all types of pleasure, whether it's the desire for comfort, fine food, sport, leisure, travel, whatever brings them pleasure. Material wealth lures them to focus their attention on things, and then they become so busy using all their stuff, all their toys that God has obviously blessed them with, that they have no time to serve the Lord. But isn't it just as possible that Satan has lured you away from God by giving you much? You see, the more you accumulate possessions, the more increasingly materialistic you become. It is very, very hard for those who are prosperous not to become materialistic and worldly and to live for the pleasures and the prestige of this world. The rich believer is tempted to think too highly of himself because of the status that wealth brings. Mark Twain once wrote, The offspring of riches is pride, vanity, ostentation, arrogance, and tyranny. Wealth can easily generate pride because a rich man is treated differently. Rich man has many friends, Proverbs tells us. Because people all want something. So people flatter or, at the least, feign respect and and defer to his opinion. It's always amazed me over the years, uh, having been in law enforcement and then in business and in the ministry now for uh, almost three decades, it's always amazed me how people who have absolutely no integrity, who are dishonest and corrupt, all of a sudden become respectable when they get money. 
And before long, the, the wealthy person begins to believe the flattery. They begin, he, he begins to believe his own press clippings. And of course, those who have wealth can begin to trust in their wealth and in their properties and their investments, their 401ks for their security. I mean, money often gives the rich a false sense of security. And when you have much, you tend to trust what you have instead of trusting God. It's always amazing to me how people who have will tell people who don't have, well, you just need to trust the Lord. Well, easy for you to say. You know, are you trusting the Lord? Is that borne out by your giving? You know, someone once said, if you really want to know someone's true spiritual condition, if you really want to know uh, the condition of their heart, spiritually speaking, he said, look at their checkbook. Speaks volumes. Money often gives the rich a false sense of security. When you have much, you, you tend to trust what you have instead of trusting God. I mean, wealth and the abilities that lead to wealth can create a barrier between us and God. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You know, in, in Luke chapter 12, why don't you turn there real quick. Luke chapter 12. Verse 15, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told a parable. Let me just read it. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So here's a guy who had a lot, had an abundance. And instead of being a kind and generous man, he just tore down his barns and built bigger ones so he could store what he had and keep it all for himself. And he thought he had plenty laid up, and he could just kick back uh, and enjoy the flight. But look what God said to him in verse 20. Fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus said, so is the one 
who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Prosperity is a great trial. And the message of the Bible is that having much is dangerous. Because Satan eagerly uses our riches to get us to trust in ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The entire New Testament, as well as what we see in people's lives, indicates that riches are a potential danger to spiritual life, a great potential danger. Jesus views riches as a spiritual liability rather than an asset. But having said all of that, we we must remember that the Bible does not condemn wealth or riches. And there were many godly men in the Bible that were extremely wealthy, men such as Abraham and Job. So the Bible does not condemn wealth, but it does condemn the love of wealth and riches. I mean, Abraham was a wealthy man, yet he kept his focus on the Lord. But in contrast, as one man said, those who worship wealth perish with their God. James commands the rich Christian to boast, to rejoice in his humiliation. You'll notice what James does not say. He does not say, let the rich man boast in his riches. He does not say, let the rich man boast in his possessions. Rather, he says that the rich man is to boast or rejoice in his humiliation. And the word humiliation means low estate or low position. And so what does this mean? Well, the idea is that a believer who is materially well-off and physically blessed should not take pride in his social position, his worldly status, because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away. That is, he's going to die. And James drives this point home in verse 11 where he says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I mean, this is a picture of the flowers and grasses of Israel which flourish in early spring and, and they're, they're, they're dried up and dead by May. And James borrows this imagery from Isaiah chapter 40. I mean, like a wildflower or the, or the, the wild grasses the, and the wildflower, which looks you know, beautiful for a, a little while. But then under the blazing heat of the Middle East sun, soon it withers, falls, and, and its beauty perishes. In other words, it's finally destroyed. And in the same way, James says, the rich man is going to fade away even in the midst of his pursuits. In other words, even while he's going about his business. Because a man's riches will not buy him an extra day. Won't buy him an extra hour or even an extra minute. The rich man will die just like the poor man. 
James says to the rich believer, says the rich believer ought to realize that riches are nothing in themselves. They are not eternal. And they, like the rich man himself, will also pass away. And the man who puts his trust in earthly values and material possessions is a fool. Just like Jesus said to that man that built the bigger barns, he's a fool because he's trusting in what is temporary. And for all of the great reputation his, his wealth gave him in society and no doubt in his own eyes, the rich man was no different than the lowly man. No different at all. Because he too was no more than a hell-deserving sinner entirely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God for his salvation and for any other blessing of eternal value. Both the rich and the poor believers share the same salvation in Christ. Both are equally members of the family of God and the body of Christ. And before they were saved, they were both equally hell-deserving sinners. No different whatsoever. And so instead of boasting in his earthly position and possessions, the rich believer is to boast in his position in Christ Jesus, just like the poor brother. His boast is to be in God, not his wealth. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So James is telling the rich man the only thing that he has to boast in is the Lord. Because that's all that matters. In the end, that is all that matters. Because when someone comes to that, that moment of dying, their, their thought, I guarantee you, is not, man, I wish I had a little more money. Wish I would have saved a little more. No, the rich man is to boast in nothing but the Lord. And only God's wisdom enables us to see earthly wealth and status as they truly are. Only God's wisdom enables us to see that earthly security and joy will perish. And only that which is connected with God will last. I mean, only God's wisdom can enable the rich man to humble himself and not take pride in his earthly position and trust in his possessions, but instead to boast, to rejoice in the Lord that he knows God. Commenting on this passage, one man having placed the passage in the context of wisdom said, the poor man is enabled to go on with God in spite of the adverse circumstances of poverty because the wisdom from on high has opened the glories of heaven to him and he counts them richer than all the trials of earth. 
And the rich man is enabled to go on with God in spite of the snares and enticements of wealth because wisdom from on high has opened his eyes to the real state of earthly things, how perishable they are, how unsatisfactory they are in the long run. Wisdom opens the eyes both to the glories of heaven and to the hollowness of earth. James instructs poor Christians to rejoice in their high position in Christ. In boasting of, of all the spiritual riches they have in him. And he instructs the rich ones to rejoice in their low position by humbling themselves before God and boasting in their relationship with Christ rather than the riches of this life which are fleeting and unpredictable. For as one man said, only one life will, tw- will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And life in this world passes very quickly. It really is like withering grass and the fading flower. And when we get to heaven, we will not be rich Christians and poor Christians. You know that? We will all be the same in heaven. We will just be Christians. There was a army chaplain that was seated at the dinner table along with an army general. And during the uh, course of dinner, the, the general said to the chaplain, Chaplain, tell me something about heaven. Chaplain thought for a moment and he looked right at the general. He said, well, in heaven you will not be a general. <laughs> it's true. There will be no rich or poor in heaven. We'll all be the same. And now in verse 12, James speaks of the blessing for those who remain steadfast or those who persevere in trials. Look at verse 12. So we've kind of come full circle now. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This statement takes us back to verses 2 to 4 where James tells us to have an attitude of joy and trials and, and where he specifically deals with the subject of perseverance. But it also has links with the passage that we've just been looking at this morning. Because the poor Christian is under certain pressures because of his poverty and the rich man because of his wealth. And in this sense, they are both under trial. One is tempted to doubt God because he has so little, and the other to forget God because he has so much. Yet James has a final word of encouragement for every Christian under trial. He says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And this word blessed speaks of an inner quality of happiness in God. A happiness not not affected by outward circumstances, I mean, this differs from what we commonly think of as happy. It means much more than, than the mere happiness of a, of a carefree life that has little conflict or trouble. I mean, this carries the idea of a profound inner joy and satisfaction, 
a joy and happiness not dependent upon favorable external circumstances. It's, it's a deep-seated joy that we may have in the midst of even life's greatest trials. As one man said, it is a joy that only the Lord himself is able to bestow on those who for his sake and in his power faithfully and patiently endure. And James says, blessed, or oh, how happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Of course, trials are a means by which our faith, you know, tested in the fires of suffering and adversity, is, is proven, refined, purified, and strengthened. And James tells us here, the blessed man, the, the truly happy man, is the one who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, the man who perseveres in the face of suffering and difficulty, the one who asks for and receives divine wisdom to see, to see, to stand, and to respond properly, just quietly accepting God's will, trusting God to enable him to endure and, and to keep moving forward and to keep serving and, and to keep obeying and to keep on keeping on under trial. James says that in the midst of bearing up under trials, there, there is an inward experience of joy and, and happiness that is so profound that, that the world cannot understand. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, you know, when we have stood the test, literally passed the test, when we have endured through our trials, when our faith has been tested and proven genuine, it's been purified and strengthened by trials. James says, this man, this believer, will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I mean, the believer is promised that he will receive the crown of life. And the future tense points to something certain, absolutely certain, that lies ahead of the believer. And it is that certainty that often becomes the believer's greatest motivation to keep pressing forward. The Apostle Paul explained, he said in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then a little bit farther down in that chapter he said, And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our body. And for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, with perseverance, he said, we wait eagerly for it. What kept the Apostle Paul going in the midst of persecution and opposition and suffering? He anticipated eternity. He had a glimpse of what was ahead, and so that he, he pushed himself. He struggled with adversities. He fought the good fight and, and trusted the Lord that he might persevere. And here James promises that in the future the believer will receive the crown of life crown of life. Well, what is this crown of life that the Lord gives? Well, the Greek word for crown is Stephanos. Most of you are familiar with that. It's the victor's crown. It's a, it was a wreath of 
laurel leaves that was placed upon the head of someone who had won an event in, in uh, ancient Greek athletic events, such as the uh, Olympic Games. And it's actually better translated, the crown that is life. The crown that is life. It speaks of the believer's ultimate reward, eternal life, which God has promised to him and and will grant in full at death or, or at Christ's coming. But let's be clear here, James is not teaching that perseverance earns us eternal life. No, no. No, believers already have eternal life. Just as Jesus promised, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Believers already have eternal life. They're not earning eternal life by their perseverance. But rather, when believers receive the crown of life at death or at Christ's coming, they will receive and experience eternal life in all of its fullness in the presence of God. In the future, the Apostle Paul assures us, henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Peter assured believers, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus said to the believers in the persecuted church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All of these crowns, the crown referred to as the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, or the crown of glory, it's the same crown, and it will be received by every believer. It's not These crowns are not one of the various rewards that believers will receive based on their faithfulness that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. But rather, these crowns are the common reward of eternal life in all of its fullness that is bestowed upon every single believer because of their saving faith in Jesus Christ. In glory, there will be no rich Christians and no poor Christians. There will simply be believers in Jesus who are just so astonished and so amazed that that the God of glory was gracious enough to forgive their sins and to give them eternal life. And you'll notice that this crown is promised to those who what? Love him. To those who love him. To those who love God. This is the first mention of love in James' letter. And you might have expected James to say the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere or to those who obey, but rather he says to those who love him. And of course, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments, so we will obey. But this crown, he says, will be given to those who love him. And the actual translation from the Greek is to those loving him, loving him. There is a quality of continuity 
It's not those who said they loved the Lord at one time, but to those who love him to the very end of their lives under all circumstances. A genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but rather he is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed, by trials and afflictions, no matter how severe or how long-lasting. Like obedience to God's will, love for God is certain evidence of true faith. So James tells us this crown of life has been promised not on the basis of performance, but rather on the basis of relationship. Relationship to God, it's given to those who love him. And of course, we only love him because he first loved us, but we love him. Having not seen him, we love him. As one man said, the prime source of our perseverance is not a grim determination to do our duty and collect our reward. It is a love for God. Love is the prime motivator for married couples, for parents, and for friends, whether times are hard or easy. Love is certainly the prime motivator for our walk with God. And it's true. Love should be the motivating factor for all that Christians do. I've told this uh, account a number of times to people in the church, so you'll have to bear with me, but if you're new, uh, you haven't heard it. But in, uh, in the 80s, uh, the, the late 80s, I had opportunity to be in communist China on three different occasions and, and met uh, some wonderful men. Uh, pastors who had all spent on an average of 24, 25 years in prison for their faith. And among them was uh, a man by the name of Wo Min Dao. Uh, he was in Shanghai. He was a contemporary of Watchman Nee. And we had opportunity to visit with him and his wife, Deborah, in their little apartment. And as we prepared to leave, we asked him, you know, what can we pray for you for? What would you like us to pray for you? And I don't know what I expected or we expected. I, I think certainly we were probably thinking in terms of protection or, you know, provision of some kind. But you know what his answer was? It was one of the most simple yet profound answers I've ever heard, and it was extremely humbling. Now, this is a man, Woman Dow, was converted at age 14. He was 88 years old when we met him. And so, what is that? He'd been a Christian for how many years? 74. 74 years, thank you. 74 years. 24, 25 of those years in prison for his faith, some of it doing hard labor in a Chinese coal mine, if you can imagine such a thing. And you know what his one prayer request was? This is what he said. Pray that I will love Jesus more. Pray that I will love Jesus more. 
And this was a guy who, had, who was a believer for 74 years whose faith had been tried and tested, who had been severely persecuted, who had little of this world's goods. And all he wanted was to love Christ more. Why? Because he understood that everything we do has to flow out of our love for Christ. That should be the motivating factor. I mean, it's love for Christ that motivates us to persevere under trials. I mean, love for Christ doesn't exempt us from trials, but it should motivate us to persevere. I mean, love for Christ is, is the necessary motivation to serve Him, especially when serving Him causes hardship and, and persecution or when it's inconvenient. That's why the lack of service is not due to lack of time, but rather it's a lack of love. First and foremost, for Christ. I mean, love is the spiritual motivation of believers, or should be. One man wrote, Our progress to the crown is expedited not by our powers of endurance, but by the depth and reality and pervasiveness of our love for Him. We live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. You see, if there's no love for Christ, which will be manifested in our lives, if there's no love for Christ or only a pretended love for Christ, then the trials and temptations of life are going to prove this out. Those who have a genuine faith, that will be proven. Those who love Christ, truly love Him, that will be proven through trials. But trials will also prove those who don't, those who aren't genuine. So this promised crown, this promised reward, it cannot be earned. It is God's gift to those who truly love Him. And show their love for him by enduring these trials. I mean, this is a promise of Jesus not recorded in the Gospels. Nevertheless, it's a promise James knew about. I mean, those who truly love the Lord will persevere. And those who persevere, these outward trials are, are guaranteed inner joy and happiness in this life and the crown of life in the next. But sadly, trials don't always produce maturity. When facing trials, some doubt God's goodness and, and turn away from Him. Others, instead of growing deeper in faith and love so that they long for the crown of life, they begin to blame God for their troubles. But James corrects this error in verses 13 to 50 which, Lord willing, we will look at next week. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass, and withers the grass, 
Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed, oh how happy, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all of those who love him. I'm so glad to be numbered among those, aren't you? We want to be numbered among those who love him. And of course, if we're all honest with ourselves, we know how fickle our love can be. We know that it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we want to love him. We desire to love him. And that's the direction of our lives. And so our prayer, like Pastor Woman Dow, should be that we would love Christ more. Amen. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.